reading for today comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at Colossians 4. And that reading that was done for us this morning, what it means to say that we are God's people. And this is one of the great Reformation truths, one of those, one of those things that the Reformation kind of restored that was actually a part, a part of our identity and our testimony as believers. And it's something that was lost for a long time but restored to the church. And, and it's one of those things, I'll be honest with you, the doctrine of vocation, the teaching about vocation that makes me the most proud to be a Lutheran. Because it's this doctrine of vocation that says no matter what you do, no matter what type of service you're in, whether you're any of the things, the kids gave us a pretty good spectrum, didn't they? All the way from superhero to you know, ballerina. That no matter what you do, as you do it in the name of the Lord, you are actually serving the Lord. And as you do those things, you are actually feeding and doing so that others would know who God is. Right? And that's what it means to trust in this teaching, to trust in God in our lives. And this is important for us, and I, I've been setting the stage uh, a couple of times over the last few weeks for us to understand that before we can talk about what we must do, we must first talk about who we are. Right? And Paul, the apostle, does that in Colossians. Right? He doesn't just start off with, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have to back up earlier to understand who we are and who he's speaking to. And if we back up just five verses before to verse 12, this is what Paul says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Therefore, as God's what people? Chosen. Means he picked you. He selected you. That he knows you. By name and completely, you are God's chosen person. And he has made you holy. And holy means to set apart for and by God. That God has set you, you, apart. So not only did he choose you, not only does he know you by name, but he has set you apart for his purposes. As God's chosen people, holy and, say it, dearly loved. Not just loved but dearly loved. Loved so much that Jesus would set aside all that he had, all that was rightfully his for you. That he would die in your place, that you would have forgiveness of sins, that you would be holy and chosen, and that's what you are. 
And knowing that identity means that you are set apart. It means that you are called to be different. But understand, that reading that I just did from verse 12 starts with the word therefore. And as I always remind you, therefore means there's something earlier yet that you have to pay attention to. And we go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3 where he says this, since then you have been raised with Christ. Which means as he showed you his love through his death and resurrection, you have participated in this. He has made this who you are. You are raised with Jesus. And because you have been raised, this is what he says, set your hearts and minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Right away he sets up an opposition, doesn't he? He tells us that because we are God's people, that because we are holy and dearly loved, we are going to be different than those around us. We're going to be different than the people in the world. And so we're going to have to follow a pattern which is different in a way which is different than the ways of the world. And it's not to suggest that the ways of the world are always wrong or always bad. They're not. But when we find ourselves in opposition, it means that we follow after the things and the ways of God. That's the cost of discipleship. And what we learn and what others can attest to around us, the testimony of believers, is that God's way works. It's that this isn't just a wise old book, but it's God's word to us, written so that we would know whose we are, written so that we would know what God wants with us. And so when the world and the Bible are at odds, God expects his children to follow his ways, to follow after his patterns. And when we get to the doctrine of vocation, it means that we have to honestly evaluate our lives. And I'm going to urge you to do that this week. To spend some time thinking about the places and ways where things aren't going so well. And to ask yourself, is it because I'm following after the ways of the world? And am I willing to amend those parts of my life, to to amend my life to follow after God's ways. And now, don't misunderstand me, because just because you start living according to God's ways doesn't mean that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. We have lots of examples in the Scriptures and outside of the Scriptures of people who live according to God's ways who are not healthy, wealthy, or wise. But it means that we live in sync with our God. We live in harmony with who he has called us to be. We live our true identity as we live God's ways. We start to think of the pattern of the world versus the pattern of God. We start to acknowledge that, that those things are out of sync even when we think about our own doctrine of calling, our own sense of vocation in the world. That's what, that, that's what vocation means. It just means calling. That God has called you uniquely, called you specially to the situation and station that you're in. And it speaks primarily of our relationships and the ways that we relate to the world around us. Now, I believe this is a direct oppositional, uh, direct oppositional moment. Now, stick with me for a second. The world typically tells us that we are owed something, right? You've heard this before. The world owes you something. You are entitled to something. You're entitled to a certain pattern of life. You're entitled to a certain amount of I said it before, health, wealth, and wisdom. And if you don't have it, it's because somehow someone's neglected it. Someone's taken it from you. That's the pattern of the world. The pattern of the Scriptures is quite different. The pattern of the Scriptures is that the world is broken. And the world owes you nothing. I I think Calvin and Hobbes used to do this quite a bit. right? Uh, This is one of my favorites. I'll just let you read it. 
Or if you can't read the end, Calvin ends with, I know it isn't fair, but why is it never unfair in my favor? Right? Or as I heard a pastor say once, fairness ended in the garden. And ever since then, there has been unfairness. Because there's unfairness in the world, because of the brokenness of the world, the world owes us nothing. And as if that's not bad enough, the scriptures tell us is that we owe the world. That we owe the world. Talk about changing the ledger sheet. It's what we owe the world that the scriptures speak of. The ways that we live out our identity as Christians. What we learn in the scriptures is that we're to do all things, even the most difficult things, in the name of Jesus. And so Paul outlines those for us here in chapter 3. He starts off like this, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he gets into specifics. Wives, submit to your husbands. That this is what wives owe their husbands. Wives owe their husbands this submission. Now I know I've just lost 50% of you, but stick with me. Because first I want to speak to the husbands in this. Husbands, you cannot insist on this. Did you hear me? You cannot insist on this. In fact, the Bible also knows that. It's back in Genesis when it says your desire will be for your husband and he will lord it over you. That's part of the curse, not part of the blessing. That's not part of the restored order that God has for us. Husbands can't insist on this in some way and act as if this is some sort of a permission giving to keep a wife under your thumb. It's not at all what's spoken of here. Instead, it's a voluntary and willing submission. It's saying, wives, what you do is to show respect and honor to your husband. And again, to be very clear, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 20 and following that speak more about this submission begin with a verse that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is what we owe to each other. And yet this is God's pattern. This is God's way. And I've been a pastor for 15 years, and I was in a college context for about seven of those years. And in that context, I did lots of weddings and lots of pre-marriage counseling. And I'll tell you, over and over again, I would ask the question to the guys who were there, when do you feel most loved? By your future wife. And over and over again, it was something that related back to this honor and respect. When she tells me I did a good job, when she tells me I'm proud of her, when she encourages me in what I do. That, wives, when you do this, when you demonstrate this type of respect and honor and submission, when your husband experiences these things from you, he will know that he is loved. And that's the point. Do all things, even the difficult things, in the name of Jesus. Then Paul turns to husbands and what husbands owe their wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is in direct contradiction to what was taught at the day. This is in direct contradiction to the the pattern of behavior in Paul's world where husbands were expected to be harsh with their wives. And Paul says, not so with you that you are to love your wives and to be gentle with them. And in so doing, you are to demonstrate 
that you belong to Jesus. I want to tell you about a unique experience that I had. I was, I was an intern uh, before my senior year of college political internship in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that I did as an intern, I got to go to the CNN and to watch a, a debate on TV with Bernard Shaw, remember the longtime anchor of CNN, and it was a debate between Congresswoman Pat Schroeder and Christy Hamrick. And uh, you might remember Pat Schroeder, she ran for president at one point, and the two of them were going to be debating uh, women's issues in marriage specifically, and Christy Hamrick at the time was like nine and a half months pregnant, right? So I mean, she was just first child, and so they go into this little studio, and uh, Pat Schrader, she's like leaning on Pat Schrader's arm, and she's leading her in, and then they sit down in the chair, and then the cameras come on, and they're like, you don't know anything about what it means to be a woman. You don't know anything about marriage. You don't, and they just yell at each other for like five minutes, and then the cameras turn off, and they look at each other, and they're like, I think that went well. Yeah, I think that went well. That's great. So you're due any day? Yeah, I'm due any day. And I'm not saying it was an act for the camera. I'm just saying it sure seemed like an act for the camera. But what happened next was the most remarkable thing. Because Bernard Shaw chimed in and said, I have never, never valued and respected and loved my wife more than when she was pregnant with our first child. She was amazing. And then Pat Schrader talked about her husband and what a gem he was. She used that word, I'll never forget. Gem he was in caring and supporting her during that time. And then Christy Hamrick started talking about the same thing and saying how amazing her husband had been through this, through this pregnancy. And I thought to myself, isn't that amazing? This common thread for all three of them. And I now understand it. It's a thread of love and gentleness. It's not just in those moments when there's children involved. Imagine if that was the standard always. That wives could say about their husbands, he always supports me. He always encourages me. He always loves me with the type of love that's spoken of here, the type of love that's defined in the scriptures as self-sacrifice, of putting your wife first, not one and a half, not one A, first, of demonstrating the type of love that would surrender. And so don't make it something that it's not. It's not condescending. It's not belittling. It's self-sacrificing. Do all things, even the difficult things, in the name of Jesus. And Paul turns to children. And whether you're a husband or wife, you are or have been a child. And this relates to those who are children now, those who are children of God, to understand what it means to be children. He says, children owe their parents obedience. For those of you children that are a little older, I'll lift the lid for you. Your parents don't have it all figured out. And yes, we also know this. And I was actually going to relate when we first brought our child home. And it was a quick story. And it was repeated yesterday in the wedding that I did. The wedding, the bride's father actually got up and said almost the exact same thing. He talked about bringing this frail child home and thinking, oh my goodness, this is my child to take care of. And I remember saying to Kate with our first child, no one's coming to get this child. Like, she's, she's ours. We better be, what do we know about parenting? Who decided this was a good idea? <laughs> Children owe their parents obedience, even when they don't have it all figured out. It's good for us 
It's good for us as children to learn our place, that the world doesn't revolve around us. It's good for us to remember that there's a commandment about this, and that that commandment includes a promise, the only one that does, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. That's what your parents desire for you, and in that spirit, parents are to be obeyed. Children do the difficult things in the name of Jesus. And then it says fathers, and this includes all parents. Parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. I, I wrote this, parents owe their children guidance with kindness, right? Guidance with kindness. And, and, and I got to tell you, one of the jokes that I like to make is that my responsibility and privilege as a parent is to crush my children's dreams, That's the exact opposite of what the scriptures say. We owe our children guidance with kindness. It means to help, to teach, to lead, to don't always look for the bad, though when you see it, to correct, to seek the good, and to praise that when it's seen. Parents, do the difficult things in the name of Jesus. And because that's not always all-encompassing, husbands and wives and children and parents, Paul then continues and he talks about slaves and masters. And we might right away jump off and say, slaves and masters doesn't relate to us because we don't do that anymore. But it's important for us to understand, especially in the New Testament, slaves has less to do with race and more to do with social status. That people would willingly submit themselves to bond servitude because they were of a lower status and had no other way to provide. And so they would surrender themselves for life to someone, to a master that they would serve, that they would work for, and in return, that master would provide for them and for their family. It wasn't that much different than an employee-employer relationship. And so when we hear these admonitions, we can't think of this just as chains and difficult, uh, difficult situations. We can't just think of it as oppression. But to understand, instead, this is speaking to us even as workers. Slaves owe their masters obedience and activity. In other words, do what your boss tells you to do. Be a good employee. Do. Work hard. Right? Understand that this is what you're called to do. To, to do and to be someone who others look to and say, this is somebody that I want to have working for me. That's what employees owe to employers, what slaves owe to masters, obedience and activity. Do all things, even the difficult ones, in the name of Jesus. And then finally, you might say, but but I'm not one who works for anyone. I'm the boss. And if you are, then the Bible speaks to you too. It says, provide you what you owe is provision and fairness. For all those who are working under you to be fair and generous in the ways that you behave toward them. Do what is right and fair. To not treat others as you don't wish to be treated yourself. But instead to understand that God is watching you. That you are also a child of God. That you also know, as the scriptures say, what it's like to have a master over you. And how does God treat you? but with respect and love. That's what the scriptures say we are to do. We're to do all things, even the difficult things, 
in the name of Jesus. Whether we're a parent or a child, an employee or an employer, a husband or a wife, the Bible speaks to us. But it always speaks in the context of our identity. It always speaks to us in understanding our role and what we can do according to how God has claimed us and called us as his children. One of my professors this past week said this, there are all sorts of things that get people out of bed. People get out of bed for a lot of different reasons. To be a spouse, to be a parent, to go to work. And all those are fine, but only as long as their motivation is to glorify their God. Only as far as our motivation is to understand our calling, that through us, God is providing for our neighbor. And so God calls you, as his chosen people, holy and dearly loved, to do all things, even the difficult things, in the name of Jesus. And so one last thing that you need to hear is that this isn't just a sermon about do and do and do and do and do. But it's instead to understand our Lord Jesus and the way that he fulfilled his unique call that we can read about in Matthew chapter 20 where Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And because of Jesus and his obedience to his call, you and I are empowered and emboldened to do all things, even the difficult things, in the name and for the glory of Jesus our Savior. In his name, amen.